Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, your neighborhood-friendly pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And as we are still in Spooktober, but I wanted to keep it uplifting, I figured we'd cover, I don't know, something scary, cheery, yeah. somewhere in between. Yeah, uh, like Hocus Pocus. <laughs> something cheery, something scary. Let's yeah. talk about oh, yeah. cancer. Okay, no. What? <laughs> what are you? No, no, but little cancer. Little, like, little cancer? Little tiny cancer. cancer. Hold me closer, <laughs> tiny cancer. <laughs> you know, uh, listening audience, we've been talking about this pun all week. Like if, if you pull up next to me and I, my windows are rolled down and I'm like scream singing, Hold me closer, tiny cancer to Beverly Boulevard. So let's introduce our our special guest expert for the week who's going to join us on a magical, whimsical ride through the world of pediatric <laughs> cancer. A series of words I bet you did not expect to hear. Yeah. So allow me to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Nicole Baca. She is a graduate of the Ross University School of Medicine and has gone through University of Nevada for residency and comes to us from the venerable University of California at Irvine and Children's Hospital of Orange County, where she completed her fellowship. Uh, she's absolutely tremendous pediatric oncologist, Dr. Nicole Baca. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Well, thank you for the robust introduction. Let's wander on over to the Wayback Machine and go over a couple historical ones that I, you may or may not be familiar with, Dr. Nicole. The oldest description of cancer 
was discovered. Santosh, do you want to guess where I'm setting the dial for the way back machine? <laughs> is it your favorite way, way back of all time, ancient Egypt? It it's is. Ancient Egypt. It's breast cancer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The Edwin Smith oh. papyrus. <laughs> yeah, okay. Describes eight cases of tumors or ulcers of the breast that were removed by cauterization with a tool referred to as the fire drill. Oh, that yeah. can't be. <laughs> with the level of technology available at the time. <laughs> Nicole, where do you keep your fire drill? <laughs> That's kind of frowned upon. <laughs> I do use uh, tiny tinkers of poison, but nope. Yeah. Fire there, there's no like you know fire drill closet in the basement. No. Oh. <laughs> However, the writing says about the disease there is no treatment. Probably why the fire drill fell out of fla- favor. What's this going to do? nothing really well, then, then why are okay. you doing it you know just because it's a fire drill wouldn't you use it um but then jumping forward a little bit to around 460 to 370 bc the age of hippocrates we right. first got cancer named uh, carcinos the greek word for crab or crayfish as well as carcinoma two separate words Uh, He used them to describe carcinos was to describe ulcer forming tumors and carcinoma were non ulcer forming. I didn't know they were separate at that time. I always think of Oma as like carcin, but just as a solid body ulcer forming cancer, such as Nicole. What's a good example of a cancer that ulcerates? Some of the breast cancers. Okay. And then the yeah, yeah. Too many ulcer forming cancers that you think about in pediatrics as much. I mean, and I don't think they're talking about colon cancer in those days because they weren't doing colonoscopies that I know of. <laughs> they were solid tumors. So in Greek, these words refer to the crab, most likely applied not because of the, the urban legends that the pain pinches like the claws of a crab, but because the finger like spreading projections from a cancer to the surrounding area call to mind the shape of a crab's legs. Is that kind of still how it's described when you see a solid tumor kind of wrapping around? I mean, it depends on the type of cancer. I think one that comes to mind when you think about that is neuroblastoma, fairly solid tumor that's fairly common in toddlers um, and counts for about 15% of pediatric deaths. And if I recall correctly, and I may not be right on this, it's about maybe 5% of all pediatric cancers, but it's obviously a higher number in the very little ones, those um, toddlers and preschoolers. But when Mm -hmm. the surgeons talk about going in for that, it adheres to everything around it. So it's a very surgically challenging case um, because of how sticky it is. And some others are not always as challenging to get out, but neuroblastoma is notorious for just matting and adhering to everything around it. So grabby and sticky. So yeah, so still very apropos of the the crab analogy. Josh, we've talked about this before. Everything goes to crab. Right? Carcinization. Ultimately, we all become crab. Yeah. Nicole, we were talking about this in terms of evolutionary biology. Crabs have evolved several times over the vast uh you know kind of epochs of life. And it looks like everything likes to become a crab no matter what it starts out as, especially in the ocean. 
So everything goes to crab. Yeah. And people get crabby as they get older. So it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, zing. But treatment was based in the times of ancient Greece on the humor theory of your bodily fluids, black and yellow bile, (laughs) blood and phlegm. According to the patient's humor, treatment consisted of changes to the diet, bloodletting and or laxatives so obviously (laughs) nothing like oncology today (laughs) which treats cancers with changes to the diet uh (laughs) blood depleting medications sure and or laxatives (laughs) we give a lot of laxatives we do that's true (laughs) we do yeah yeah the number of times where you and i have had that conversation of is this diarrhea from an infection or is it from the Miralax? <laughs> it's always the Miralax. It's always the Miralax. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you just to be up, you you got to do something. You can't just let yeah. them walk around plugged up. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that that's a whole different kind of uh, of tumor it's a whole in there. Other set of problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we used to call that one still kind of a tumor, though. Back in Miami, we used to call it a fecaloma. Yeah. 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 So it it looks like, you know, uh, the the diarrheal part, it's, you know, getting people to move and using laxatives are because the the uh, chemotherapy that you're using, some of them have the tendency to cause more constipation. Is that what's going on? Yeah. Like particularly you think about uh, benchristine which okay. is used a lot for like our leukemias is very notorious for being constipating. And then a lot of these kids, depending on what they've got, they may have pain. And so they may be on opiates, which obviously are going to hit the nerves in the bowel and slow down um, transport and cause constipation. So a lot of times these kids will have reasons for getting constipated from our medicines, but then, you know, Usually, shockingly, once you start treatment, a lot of times these kids start to feel a lot better, which seems a little bit counterintuitive because you think I'm starting chemotherapy, I'm going to, these kids are going to feel so sick. But a lot of times the the cancer starts responding, particularly in your leukemias and your lymphomas, and they feel significantly better sometimes in days to weeks. Now, obviously, we're not out of the woods and they have a lot more treatment to go, but they feel so much better. They're moving around, whereas they're not. In, they may get constipation just because they're sitting in bed, depending yeah. on if they're in pain or let's say you have a bone tumor in your leg, you have an osteosarcoma, like it's really hard to get up and move about. So you get constipation just from sitting there. Oh, gosh. Okay. So multifactorial. Yeah. And yeah. And then we kind of ruin everything because our new children's word, you know, we've put iPads and TVs in every single room. So (laughs) they have zero reason to get up and move these poor kids. I think my kids are moving about more. They're so (laughs) excited about like the media room and being on the level where they can go out to the gardens more easily. Floor is just so bright and light that in, I think they're like walking around more, but a lot of times, you know, patients that are on my service are admitted for longer periods of time. They may be there for days, sometimes to weeks, sometimes months. And so I think they probably get into a little different routine than um, a child that's there for a more common reason why a kid would be in the hospital where maybe they're in for a day or two, maybe a week max. So in my, and they're frequent flyers. So I think they're just bored used to it like, <laughs> they want to wander around they like to yeah. know everybody i have one kid who knew all the 
security guards. I was like, how does he know everyone? <laughs> That's so cool. And all the while you are, you know, um, balancing their humors, lowering the blood and, and uh, getting the diarrhea going and, and all the all the same stuff like the ancient Greeks did. So it's so the more so things cool. change, the more, the they, more stay they stay the same. More the same. Now, we all know. So now we've explained where cancer comes from and carcinos. Uh, mm-hmm. Tumor, of course, is Latin for swelling. But if we hop one one language over back to Greek, the Greek word for swelling is onkos, giving us the oh. name of your specialty. So as doctors go, Dr. Nicole, you are swell. <laughs> the doctor of swelling. I am. <laughs> um, so let's start with one of the very first cancers uh discovered or not first discovered but we'll Mm. say the first environmental cancer and it involves uh a physician known as percival pot which is about as british a name as you can come up with (laughs) yeah so he was a doctor of swelling also but in you know we we talk about pot's disease right um it is that that pot but this is not that story yeah, yeah. And and he did have a Potts puffy tumor, but it's not cancer. It's infectious where the the sinuses puff up. Picture the world of Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah. All right. She's floating down from the umbrella with her umbrella onto the chimney tops with Dick Van Dyke. And mm-hmm. before everything supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, uh, you yeah. see a wide variety of chimney sweeps. A bunch of young young boys, chim chimney Chim chimney chim chim chiru. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, beautiful, you know, suit on their cheeks. They're little raggedy, and they're carrying their uh, their brushes, their bristles. So there was no way to kind of clear out smoke uh, in ye olde times, you know, nineteen hundreds. But this is even before that. So you had to get a job. You could be hired to go and, and clean out the chimney so that you could use your fireplace without all the smoke backing up into your house and you know killing you so well there's a couple of historical inaccuracies with mary poppins shocking i know (laughs) don't hey those accents were perfect oh no 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 the accents were spot on as was the interaction (laughs) between humans and animation like that's true to life but yeah Chimney sweeps often wore no clothes so they were as small as possible to fit into the narrow twisting victorian chimneys uh what <laughs> yeah they they went in and cleaned the chimney like santa claus <laughs> no, no 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 okay stop it right there santa claus doesn't come down the chimney naked N- nicole santa claus uh, doesn't uh, come down do the you chimney. do you know that santosh are you uh, staying up to see him oh god Oh, God. Okay, relate this to medicine somehow before I get grossed out. Oh, and then the other part is all those children in that song would be dead of cancer. (laughs) Oh, no. But there's a happy ending to this story. Stay with me. Okay, okay. So Percival Pott, 18th century England, uh, noted that the scrotal cancer or scrotal cancer very, very commonly afflicted chimney sweeps. Young boys sent up into chimneys into to clean away the soot left over from fires. And he started to think that, you know, all this soot that they're exposed to, it's the only consistency I see that might cause that type of cancer. 
So this is one of the first environmental factors contributing to cancer we know about. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's still due to smoking. Uh, (laughs) So I'm um, I'm sure you're going to tell me, but I'm guessing that, you know, when they saw the scrotal cancer, I'm guessing that was metastatic or something that like it it had to come from the lungs or somewhere. Well, again, remember the chimney sweeps wore no clothes. So they're crawling around. So the cancer would appear on the bottom of the scrotum and manifested as a painful, ragged sore with hard raised edges that was so common in this field, the chimney sweep trade called it a suit wart. Nicole, I don't think that that this sort of thing is common, like at all, at all, in any of your practice, right? No, no, no. Is it a, like a skin kind of cancer that they're describing? It, on the outside, right? It's muscular. It doesn't. Yeah. So yeah, it was an ulcer. It's an ulceration. Uh, I will. If you really want, I'll include a link in the show notes. Sure. <laughs> but it's on it's on the skin. It's on the outer surface of the scrotum. On the skin, yeah. okay. Now, because okay. the sore never appeared in males before puberty, most surgeons considered it a symptom of a sexually transmitted or venereal disease. Think oh. about that for a minute. Okay. That all This right. sore did not appear in males before puberty. So the surgeons at the time said, eh, these kids are sleeping around. Bunch of, <laughs> bunch of slutty eight-year-olds. <laughs> Wait, no, no, but it didn't appear before puberty. So, like, they, they like teenagers. He was, he was yes. a while for it. Yes, right. Sounds so he was it. alleging that they hit thirteen and just was like all these kids would hit thirteen and immediately jump into the sack. Um, <laughs> so that's what they're saying. But it probably yeah, yeah. Is. So Whoa. as such. Because they thought it was a venereal disease, they treated it with ointments and salves, which did nothing to stop it from spreading from the scrotum to the testicles and then up into the abdomen. Oh, okay. And Pot was one of the first surgeons to suggest removing scrotal tissue at the very first indication of a sore, because if it spread to the testes, you couldn't even halt the spread of cancer with castration. So he has an idea of metastasizing. Okay, okay. Uh, the early, early treatment, early care. Now, he noted that the cause, or he hypothesized that the cause of this scrotal cancer and soot association was the way the soot lodged in the folds of skin and the multiple surface area. And okay. because we as scientists do not let something like this go unstudied. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Did did we get like a a historical oncologist kind of thing? Even better. In 2015, okay. researchers have determined uh-huh. we won't go into the multiple. Uh, no, we'll just say no chimney sweeps are harmed in the making of this study. Okay. But as of 2015, researchers determined that soot lodged in the skin of the scrotum would exfoliate away cells at a rapid rate which then caused cells to replicate more quickly, enabling a higher probability of cancer-causing mutations to occur with frequency. Oh, wow. So, Nicole, you know, rapid uh, kind of induction of of rapid cell division. So this is like the kind of the heart and soul of most of the cancers that you treat, right? Yeah. Most pediatric cancers are not genetically linked. It's you know, five 
to maybe 10%, depending on where you're looking, will find a reason. Like the family has leaf remainies or, you know, the P53 mutation and they inherit, have inherited increased risk of cancer. But for environmental reasons in general, Mm -hmm. we don't really have a cause. So something is happening to these kids and we just haven't figured it out yet. But it sounds like they figured out what happened with those chimney sweeps. And it seems like a very plausible hypothesis. Furthermore, they probably had less access to bathing. So it probably sat on the skin and continued to irritate it. Now, all of this was discovered, you know, in the late 1770s by Pot himself, if not to that level of specificity. So by linking soot exposure to chimney sweeps scrotal cancer, he established not only one of the first environmental causes of cancer, but convinced the British Parliament to pass the Chimney Sweepers Act of 1788, which prevented boys under the age of eight from becoming chimney sweeps and mandated they be given clothing to protect their bare skin from that exposure. Like government actually like protecting and helping people. Well, the rate decreased of scrotal cancer in that population. See, so happy ending. (laughs) That's so good. Okay, so you you are giving us like a spooky but light spooktober. And I hope that everyone, you know, as we keep listening, um, keeps getting that vibe because I'm going to spoil it a little bit, Nicole, but like working with cancer and children is pretty, pretty cool because a lot of kids do well. Yeah, about 85%, um, 84% a survival rate five years. And usually you think if you make it five years, you're cured. So this is not the same thing as grandma and grandpa getting sick. Now, granted, there are still some really horrific cancers. There's some bad diagnoses. But taking all players, walking into my clinic, most of the time, it's going to have a happy ending. Yay. That's so awesome. Josh. It may not be a straight road. It may be pretty winding and torturous. And sometimes, you know, they may have bad side effects and it's not easy, but most of them are going to make it. So it's, it's an exciting area to practice in. It's my absolute favorite. That's why I love pediatrics too. Uh, absolutely the same thing with infections, like a kid, an adult, all things being equal and they get the same infection. Uh, our kids are going to do so much better than a grown up. The the thing where you were talking about where you have rapid cell turnover like that, and eventually you start to get you know mutagenesis, and then they divide out of control and turn into cancer. This is a lot what we associated with things like uh, human papillomavirus as well. Uh, as a for instance, is that the virus is replicating and it kind of forces the cells that the virus lives in to replicate and replicate and replicate. And when that gets out of control, these little checkpoints that are supposed to keep errors from happening fail. And so, you know, it's kind of neat. We talked about that kind of a skin cancer and public health and it got better. And Nicole, nowadays we've got HPV vaccine and we can prevent cancers. Same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't have a great vaccine rate, but if they That's get true. Vaccine. And one day, Santosh, on another mm. episode, perhaps as bonus content for our plus listeners, oh, yeah. I will tell you the story of how the HPV vaccine comes from the grand tradition of the jackalope. The jackalope? The, the little rabbit with the antlers? That's the one. <laughs> directly, directly... <laughs> 
or at least significantly indirectly led to the creation of the HPV vaccine. Oh, I'm going to have to hear that sometime. Absolutely. Um, Now, before we go into the next historical fun fact, let's talk a little bit about cancer in general and get into a bit more of the specialties. So just to lay out for a listening audience, there's two main flavors of cancer, uh, solid and liquid. Um, Solid tumors form a mass or multiple masses that grow in organ systems and can occur anywhere in the body, uh, like breast cancer, as mentioned before. Liquid tumors would be the ones in the blood, bone marrow, or lymph, and they can circulate around the body through the bloodstream. I think at, at its most basic level, that's a reliable description. Would you agree, Dr. Nicole? Yeah, I think that's fair. So now let's talk about, as a pediatric oncologist, what are the most common childhood cancers? Um, brain tumors are pretty common. And then probably the one that everyone thinks about is acute leukemias, either acute lymphoblastic leukemia or acute myelogenous leukemia. And pediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia is um, the most common childhood cancer. And it's really kind of the poster child for what oncologists want to be able to do in that prior to 1950, the mean survival was two months. And now depending on the subtype, so basically meaning everyone's passing away. And now depending on the subtype and the genetics of the tumor, 85 to 95, 97% survival rate for all comers. That's not going to bone marrow transplant. That's just with upfront chemotherapy. So it's, it's remarkable and it's due to research. It's due to research that was funded by the National Cancer Institute, the National Institute of Health. It's through cooperative groups that pediatric oncologists have formed. And it really is, I mean, I've gone to a con- medical conferences with both pediatric and medical oncologists, and it is often brought up of, we wish we could do to X cancer what the pediatric oncologists have done to acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's just that remarkable. Yeah, they're envious. I mean, prior to the 1950s, they couldn't differentiate between the two major subtypes. It was universally fatal. Most of the time, these kids passed away from hemorrhage and severe infections. In the 1950s to 1960s, people started doing research. Um, Dr. Sidney Barber was up at um, Boston and is a pathologist, and he was looking at the cells, trying to figure out what was going on. And he realized if you give folic acid to pernicious anemia patients where they're missing some vitamins, they do better. And leukemia kind of looked like that. So they tried giving folic acid to leukemia patients and it actually sped things up. So then they (laughs) made, whoops, yeah, science. Yeah. (laughs) So he was like, wait a minute. He tried uh, hopefully I'm saying this right because it's a medicine that we don't use anymore, amaturin. And it was an analog of modern methotrexate and it slowed things down. So, you know, research was starting during that time period. There was a Nobel Prize awarded for creation of mecaptopurine, which interferes with DNA metabolism. And prednisone was being used on everything. So they used prednisone with that. But all of these things were being used as like single agents. And so they would all extend life but these kids were still passing. 
Um, then they started doing studies and they started with really the Roswell Park Cancer Institute in. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Buffalo, New York, and the Memorial Sloan Kettering, and the NCI, obviously down in D.C. And some remissions were achieved, but they defined remission very differently. It was the patient felt better, they started eating, and the petechiae, or the rash from the low platelet counts, went away. And platelets are the cells in our body that help us scab if we're bleeding. So you can kind of, it's an oversimplified analogy, but almost like bricks in a wall. So they're like, they help make that scab. So how's remission defined now? If back then it was just return of appetite and disappearance of rash or petechiae? As time went on and they were able to better delineate exactly what it was, AML, ALL, subtypes, they used um, the microscope. So basically, depending on the type of leukemia, it's either 25% of the bone marrow or 20% or AML uh, is with blasts or leukemia cells. And when you got that down to less than 5% or non-detectable, um, preferably non, you're not finding any blasts, that um, that was considered remission. But since the early 2000s, they've had a technology developed called MRD or minimum residual disease testing, where they're able to find like one in 10,000 cells. And so now we have both a pathological or morphological remission and as well as a molecular remission. So we really rely more on the molecular remission now to know that we've wiped out everything that we are capable of finding. That's so cool. So as your tools got better and better to find less and less cancer, like to detect the tinier yeah. and tired concentrations, then your your definition kind of moved with that. And yes. likewise, your success rate. And now like one kind of followed the other until we're here today. And your expectation for a kid with low risk, you know, pre B cell ALL is like a hundred percent. Well, that's yeah. not fair. It's very close to a hundred percent that if it's gonna, a you know, low risk patient, then they, um, by definition have to have good prognostic genetics and it's about 95 to 97% survival rates usually. Dude. So that's it's crazy. Awesome. Like so, it's insane. Yeah. Zero to that. And yeah. You know, the, it was the 1960s is really when they were able to define that remission that you were asking about. And, but then, and they started, they started doing the phases of therapy that we do for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's very, like every month to two months, it kind of changes until you hit a maintenance phase. And then you do the same thing. And traditionally in the 19, I think those studies were done in the 1980s, if I recall correctly, they were looking at how long we should do maintenance. And it was 
determined that for little girls, two and a half years equaled three and a half years, but they had less side effects if we did two and a half years for their survival. So the survival was equal, less side effects. So they got two and a half years. And little boys um, had a better, the survival rate was equal to little girls or big girls, I guess teenagers too, if they got three and a half years of treatment. Um, and it was lower if they only got two and a half years total treatment when you added in the maintenance, when they were trying to determine how long we have to do maintenance. And they initially attributed that to the blood testy barrier. The, the barrier between the blood and the the parenchyma of the testicles. Yeah, because it's a sanctuary. Gotcha. Right? So it's somewhere All, where okay. <laughs> Um, All right. Just like the I never CNF. thought of the testicles as a sanctuary. So, sorry. Okay. So, so just like the the CNS, which is why we now in the 1970s they realized that they were starting to get remissions in the 1960s, but they were relapsing in the CNS, and so they realized even if they had no frank um, disease in the CNS or the fluids that surround and kind of help cushion the brain and the spinal cord, that we need to treat that anyway. Well, they went a little overkill and they did radiation. Um, and eventually we realized we don't have to do that much if you, if we're just doing it as prevention, but that it made dramatic changes. So that's why, um, these patients have to get lumbar punctures and we take out some of the fluid and we look at it and make sure we're not finding any cells there that we don't want there, no blast. And we give them medicine throughout their treatment to help prevent any cells that may have crossed into the CNS and try to protect them from having that relapse. Because again, it's a sanctuary site with the blood-brain barrier. And you know, this is why boys are always so much more trouble, right? <laughs> you know, is that you got everything you do and, you know, you can kill cancer in two years with a girl or two and a half years and then fine, it's a boy, damn it, another year. <laughs> so, but things have changed. Yeah. So now it's not that way sure. anymore. So oh, um, okay. Now they've evened that out. And the reasoning being that now we know a lot more about the cancer. So we know more about the genetics. We know more about the MRD, finding that minimum residual disease, finding those cells that are hiding. And so we're better able to risk assess. And so they've, um, within the children's oncology group, have been able to reduce that down to about a two and a half year total treatment with maintenance for both boys and girls. Some other um, research groups have also done that as well. Um, around the world. I think COG was, and a children's oncology group is funded by the NIH and NCI. Take a moment to step back from the cancer itself and look at one of the things that's really led to its rate decrease, which is, of course, chemotherapy and, and the treatments. And I have a f- I guess a fun little story about something terrifying <laughs> that ended up helping. You know, again, this is how most of my stories go. <laughs> is this going to be another one of your famous this used to kill people, but now it helps people kind of stories. Are you going to talk any? about APL yeah. where we get to use rat poison and zit cream? Oh, that's, that's one I'm going to have to look into. So we'll stay <laughs> tuned for that. Or, or yeah, yeah, actually maybe we can hear about both of them today, but let's hear about <laughs> hold, what's the one you have first, Josh. Hold that <laughs> thought. Cause I want to yeah. know more. Yeah. About yeah. Yeah. Poison and zit cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got to hear that one. All right. So first, Josh's weird killer poison that turned into be good thing. And then well, Dr. Nicole's one. <laughs> let's visit a historical period that we really haven't looked at too closely. Uh, which the Victorian is... era. No, no. I promise. Oh. I promise. <laughs> it's something new. Uh, okay. World War One. 
Oh, okay, a little bit more modern, sure. Yeah. Okay. World War One, when in the trenches, you saw the use of chemical bioweapons, like mustard gas. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> due to its vesicant action, or skin blistering, the gas would cause overwhelming infection in any soldiers exposed to it. And interestingly, leukopenia, or a lack of white blood or infection-fighting cells was found Mm -hmm. to characterize the infections. Now, because they're soldiers, a lot of them underwent autopsy, and atrophy of the lymphoid was also noted, which was first reported in 1919, treating a whole bunch of exposed patients in France. So it was known that, you you know, mustard gas could affect the blood cells. Gotcha. So you're killing off white cells and the lymphoid organs. So, you know, your lymph nodes. So like your tonsils and those little lumpy things that you can feel that get swollen up when you're sick. So, okay. So this mustard gas was destroying those. Okay. So mustard gas in and of itself can cause skin irritation. It's dose dependent. It can cause things as minor as skin irritation and conjunctivitis all the way to severe permanent lung damage when inhaled it can have chronic sequence uh chronic sequelae where people who survive can have nausea vomiting loss of hair um increased vulnerability to infection and a lot of these and this is important are the result of this poison acting as what's called an alkylating agent it will damage the dna resulting in a decreased formation of blood cells or platelets. Um, Gotcha. Now, this was, it wasn't quite known to that level of detail, but it was known that it could act as an irritant and could cause a lot of damage to some of these organ systems in general. And that was it for World War I. Jumping ahead to World War II, the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development, which I believe is a precursor to the CIA, Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, But funded Yale University to conduct chemical welfare and weapon research in secrecy. Uh, Sorry, chemical warfare, not welfare. Uh, To conduct (laughs) chemical. (laughs) Okay. All right. So they funded Yale University to conduct chemical warfare research in secrecy. And this team was led by two pharmacologists, Dr. Alfred Gilman and Dr. Lewis Goodman. Now, they again noted that this decrease in blood cells, leukopenia, um, but interestingly, they found that lymphomas in experimental animals dramatically decreased in size when exposed to mustard gas. Oh, Uh, and is this something they just tried it on or it was kind of an incidental finding? Well, they were looking to do... uh, more advanced versions of what mustard gas had been in trench warfare. Because remember, they're studying chemical warfare, but also how to treat chemical warfare against them or chemical welfare. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So if you got a soldier who had been hit by mustard gas or something, like how to make them better. But what brought the medical community's attention to the Yale group study, because that was really the very first documented study to show a benefit from chemotherapy in a human kind of cancer. So shrinking lymphomas by exposing them to mustard gas. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> but what really brought this to the great community's attention, because we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have TikTok back then. Uh, instead, we had massive war accidents. <laughs> okay. 
All right. So this got published in like newspapers. Oh, no, no, no. Even better. Uh, The SS John Harvey, a Liberty ship stationed in Italy's Barry Harbor, uh, the Italian town of Barry, had a stockpile of 100 tons of mustard gas. 100 Um, tons? 100 tons of mustard gas. On Uh. December 2nd, 1943, uh, it was shelled along with multiple other ships. Uh, The ship sank, the mustard gas rose, and the entire town was accidentally exposed as a result of the bombardment. Wow. Okay. In the days and weeks following this massive catastrophe, civilians as well as other military began to develop the signs of mustard gas exposure similar to what had been seen in Gilman and Goodman's studies. Stuart Alex Colonel Stuart Alexander, an American physician trained in chemical warfare, confirmed exposure to mustard gas based on these symptoms and the autopsies of the soldiers who had died from the ship. And he brought in his report the attention that this chemical agent could be very useful in killing rapidly dividing cancer cells, especially ones based in the blood. As a consequence, people really began to look at the event at Barry with the knowledge that mustard gas on blood cells could have medical use. Wow. Okay. So the alkylating agent, just like you said, mustard gas. So, Nicole, what are some of the descendants? I mean, we're not giving kids mustard gas anymore. Uh-huh. Like, what are the modern alkylating agents? So... Some of your modern alkylating agents would be like cyclophosphamide, melphalan, busulfan. Those would be things that you kind of think about with that. And it, they are used very frequently and they do cause secondary AMLs. Oh, so acute okay. myeloid leukemia. So we do have to, it is something I have to tell people before I start chemotherapy. Very low percentages, but there is a risk that will cause another cancer based on our chemotherapies. Oh, so you'll treat the original cancer, that one will go into remission, and then later in life, because of this DNA damage, there might be another cell line that gets affected, and it'll sit latent for a while, but then it'll start rapidly dividing somewhere down the road and become a new cancer. Alkylating agents are about five to seven years after exposure. Gotcha. So when you get that secondary AML. So we do follow these yearly after they hit that five-year mark. It it varies how frequently we see the kids depending on the type of cancer they have post-treatment. But usually when you hit about five years, it's yearly. And then when we pass them on to the internists, when they age out of peds, uh, most places in the country don't have adult oncology centers that have long-term follow-up for kids. There are definitely exceptions to that, but it's usually bigger cities. It's LA, it's New York, it's, you know, those kinds of places. So the majority of the country doesn't have that kind of access. So we'll give them a summary of what treatment did they receive and what follow-up do they need because of that, since they're probably not going to be seen by an oncologist so that, you know, they can go to their primary care physician and they can run the screening that they need because of what they were exposed to as a child, such as get a CBC every year to make sure that you're not developing a secondary cancer and check the heart because you had this kind of exposure every five years or every two years. Um, So yeah, it is definitely something you have to tell people. I've never had anyone tell me don't treat the cancer because there might be a secondary cancer because the rates are still (laughs) quite low. I think it's three to 5%. If I remember correctly off the top of my head, 
but mm-hmm. it um, it is a real risk. Much, much more benefit though. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So you mentioned that really survival rates started improving in the 50s, and uh, that was sort of between Dr. Sidney Farber discovering methotrexate and uh, mustard gas from World War One turning into nitrogen mustard, <laughs> a cancer treatment. Um, what a what a strange were, combination. There <laughs> were single, so these were single agent treatments, which yeah. did improve survival time, but still were only achieving very minor things. However, in the late 1960s, and this is not necessarily a fact that you'd be unaware of. I just wanted to say it. In the late 1960s, you got the introduction of one of the first combination chemotherapy agents, uh, nitrogen mustard, vincristine, methotrexate, prednisone, or as it's abbreviated, and I think it was two cycles, the mump protocol. Mump, mump. <laughs> okay, so this is back when it was nitrogen mustard gas before we had modern alkylating agents. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay, gotcha. But now, okay, so, Nicole, this is what you were talking about. Now we've got boosted survival rates from combinations. In the cooperative yeah. groups, yeah. Because gotcha. really there's, I think it's like 1,600. I'm, I, I don't have all these stats in front of me. I'm sorry, but I think it's like 1,600 ALLs are diagnosed a year. So if, you know, a, a decent-sized adult oncology center that treats breast may have 2,000 breast cancers a year, we're getting, you know, a, not very many ALLs per year nationally. So we have to work together. That's why the cooperative groups are so, so important and why it has revolutionized pediatric oncology. And as we're moving into the era of immune therapy, our colleagues in internal medicine are having to kind of learn from us because when you get down to that targeted exact mutation, all of a sudden your numbers go down and you have to work together to get good data. So let's talk about that. You're you're really on the cutting edge of disease treatment because you deal a lot with genetics, with immunotherapy, with things that those of us in the internal medicine side really don't think about outside of comic books. No, the <laughs> oncologists do. <laughs> they try to think about it the way that you do, but they fail. No. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so tell me about what's, you know, in, in broad terms, what is immune therapy or how many of cancers need to be examined for a genetic component when you're dealing with, with children? Are cancers tend to be more inherited? Is it because during this growth phase, you have more rapidly dividing cells and sites like bone and blood? You know, what? What's the base level of knowledge that we're so starting? That's a loaded question. Like why kids get cancer? And well, not, not why they get cancer, but why certain cancers tend to be more common. Oh, and it's, it, you know, it probably is related to, you know, what's rapidly dividing and, you know, the growth and whatnot. I don't think I know exactly the answer to your question off the top of my head, Um but it definitely does trend in certain ages. Like the bone tumors tend to be more in adolescence where we're seeing a lot of bone growth. So, you know, I, I think you probably have hit something on that. Uh, the, you know, the leukemias are oftentimes the, the mean age for an ALL is I think three to five. So I think it probably does have to do with what's, you know, growing at that time and how they're growing and changing. Neuroblastomas are an embryonic tumor. They're seen in babies and very small children, like toddlers, preschoolers. So yeah, I think it probably does have to do with that. Okay. Um, So kind of what the cells are at each phase, which is why there's such a wide variety. 
Um, there no, is. We're, we're not going to ask you to tackle <laughs> why children get cancer. Yeah. This is the cheery episode. Yeah. Remember. Um, but the, and, um, the one thing I didn't hit on is that pediatric cancers in variance with more of the traditional adult oncology uh, tend to be more homozygous and that they have many of the same mutations. And so there's less differences amongst the group. And so we'll be able to see certain changes in these kids. And so a lot of times, you know, as these new meds are coming out, we kind of know if there's going to be, if it's likely that they're going to have a certain mutation or not, because they tend to not, or they do or they don't. And it's not as much variety. And and I think we're going to have to ask that before we close out, I'm going to have to ask you to tell this story about <laughs> rat poison <laughs> and zit cream, because I need to know... Yeah, I won't be able to sleep tonight. I spoke too soon. I can't remember all the historic (laughs) how they came up with it. But basically, um, a subtype of AML, this promyelocytic leukemia, it causes you to have um, abnormalities of your coagulation proteins, and they can actually bleed to death. And you don't need to do traditional chemotherapy necessarily for them, but they respond very well to differentiating agents, which would be like your retinos. So they're used. You know, it's not quite the same thing that you're using as zit cream, but it's um, retinos that are being used on these kids and arsenic. Oh, yeah, that's oh, oh my favorite Victorian medicine and poison. <laughs> and we yeah, still yeah. use it. It's on my board. It's on the boards. So, you know, arsenic and <laughs> retinoids. Retinoic acid, which you use for this. <laughs> so it's, you know, kind of, it's like our, on the boards, I think I distinctively remember for the pediatric boards, not the not the hematology oncology boards, but the oncologist saying, "How could you beat our subspecialty? We use zit cream and rat <laughs> poison, and it has a great survival rate." Now, some of them do, depending on the you know how they present, and they do still get conventional chemotherapies, but we we do use those agents, and they are able to take that cancer and move it from this early progenitor cell and push it along to where it differentiates or becomes that adult cell that should be there. Ask your doctor if you qualify for the rat poison zit cream combination, but please don't <laughs> use those phrases. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, and I think Really, we can't top that, although it does make me think as a Halloween recommendation film, go watch Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, Delightful. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us and for your expertise, Dr. Baca. You know, you mentioned Children's Oncology Group, but Mm -hmm. any of your favorites in terms of uh, childhood oncology that are doing great things. Um, so the National Institutes of Health, the Children's Oncology Group, anybody? Probably the plug? Children's Oncology Group would be the one that I think is making making the big one of the biggest differences. Um, you know, it's funded by the NCI. It includes all of North America, or I shouldn't say all of North America. It includes the United States and Canada. It includes parts of New Zealand and. Australia, as well as portions of Europe, and some of the European groups have also, you know, collaborated with um, the Children's Oncology Group and done joint studies. When, as I mentioned, some of these cancers are so rare, and if you want to get to statistical significance, you have to work in bigger pooling, bigger groups of data, because you may only have, for example, neuroblastoma, seven hundred new cases in the United States total per year. That's it. 
So if you're going to get new data and that, you know, that's all t- comers. So it may be somebody who's a phase one or a, you know, stage four versus somebody who's a stage one and they're vastly different in how they're treated. So we have to work in these groups together. And there also is a, it's the arm that does kind of the fundraising outside of the government. And that would be the um, cure search. So, um, CureSearch.org is a, a great organization. They provide resources to families, education. That's really a safe place to go to get information that you know it's going to be. It's written by pediatric oncologists. It's written by this research group. It's going to be validated. You're not going to get some scary old wives' tale of what you need to do. It's going to actually tell you, you know, good re- and and it will also cite any other good resources and things that would be good education for someone that is having to face something like a child having cancer, donating to um, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. They give grants to, of America, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of America gives grants to families to help pay for things like gas to get to the doctor's appointment. Those are all things that add up, especially if it's a two family household that's working and now you're down to one person or one and a half. Sure, sure. So if you wanted to know who I would donate to, it would probably be those types of organizations. And then be the match. If you want to be a bone marrow donor, um, it's very easy to, you know, put yourself in the registry. And if they find someone, you don't necessarily have to do it, but you could potentially save someone's life. Yeah. And it definitely is a Caucasian Eurocentric kind of pool in general. I think that um, <laughs> there's more of them in there. So right. any kind of group, that is not is underrepresented. And if they don't have a match within their family, they may not have a match. So I mean, luckily we're able to use like half matches now. So there are more options, but that's another thing. Like if you don't have money, but you'd be willing to give part of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And stranger. Let's let God, you're not using it. I'm telling (laughs) you right now, you don't need it. You'll regenerate it. You'll regenerate it. So, uh, yeah, stop being so selfish there, you listener, you. Wolverine would do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always think if the toddlers and preschoolers can donate for their siblings, can't be that bad. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you would like to hear this show ad free or with some additional bonus content, try out our subscription tier. Why not? And until next time, as always, wash your hands, get your shot, wear a mask, find a country that has something you want to see. And when you've done all of those things, happy travels. Bye, guys. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop 
dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.